Hey, all you nature nerds. This is You're Gonna Die Out There. Welcome back, nature nerds. It is December. You are listening to You're Gonna Die Out There podcast. It's true. I'm like looking in my brain because it's not technically December right now. Hey, stop it, Megan. What? It, is, it is December. Am it's I totally December it? right now. It is. Jingle bells, jingle bells. <laughs> and I'm Jen. That's Megan singing. Hello, hello. And yeah, we have some more amazing stories for you today. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if we have any cool announcements as of yet? I don't think so. I know you and I need to brainstorm on the Christmas gift for patrons. Oh, this year. right. Right, right, right. Yes. Um, so we will be sending out our annual Christmas gift for patrons. Our beautiful patrons. Yes. And if you'd like to become a patron, you can do that by going to our link tree. Our link tree, our website. Or the website, yeah. Whichever. Check it out. Give the gift that keeps on giving to yourself (laughs) or to a friend. That's right. It's amazing. Okay, I have some science news. I'm ready. I'm ready for that science news, Jen. This is hot off the press. Well, maybe not. I mean, it's in The Guardian, but it's from November 25th, which was Friday. Oh, wow. Yeah. Right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys will hear this a little bit later. (laughs) But it's it's really new right now. Mm -hmm. And it is entitled, Wildcats Could Be Released in England for the First Time in Hundreds of Years. I worry for people right now. <laughs> that sounds no. amazing, but like also, okay, okay, okay. Let me just show you. Look at that wildcat. <gasps> oh, that kind of wildcat. That kind of wildcat. It's a European wildcat. It looks like a house cat, but it's not. It's a wildcat. Like they are in sanctuaries and stuff. And I always see them in those cat like sanctuary feeding videos. And I'm like, why are you guys feeding some stray cat? So it's a European <laughs> wildcat. The scientific name is Felis Silvestris, which. Oh. That's just murder perfection. me. I just love that so much. So I was good. like, are you kidding me right now? So good. I mean, I'm going to name my next cat Sylvestris. Looney Tunes. Stop it. it. Amazing. They. I mean, I'm just thinking of the cartoon and like they must yeah. have been like. Sylvester. Is, yes. It was Linnaeus. He knew about it. <laughs> <way back> then. <laughs> he was part of the creators. So. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Um, well, just a little bit about the species, because they don't talk about it in the article, mm-hmm. but it's a small wildcat species native to continental Europe, Scotland, and Turkey. It inhabits forests from the Iberian Peninsula, Italy, Central, and Eastern Europe. So it's described as having brownish to gray fur with stripes on the mm. forehead and on the sides, and it has a bushy tail with a black tip. So cute. You know the picture of that really, that's always in memes with that really floofy cat that's like the ultimate chonk but you can tell it's not like a domesticated cat it looks like a wild cat yeah yeah, that's, yeah. i think that's it yeah i think you're right and it's just so floofy and like you just want it but then it'll probably like murder you rip most like, of your face off for reals go for the jugular yeah mm-hmm. so they actually only get to be so head to body length is about 26 inches with a 13 and a half or so or 34 and a half centimeter long tail and it only weighs about 17 pounds. <laughs> oh, okay. So well, our cats definitely um, could I mean, arm wrestle and win. Panda, yeah. <laughs> Panda could take that. Panda could take that cat out. Yeah. For sure. So that's a little little description. What's happening is there's a group with the Wildlife Trust in England. 
And they've already been in the business of reintroducing beavers to some of the areas. And they said that this, uh, the wildcats were hunted to extinction and the European wildcat is now UK's rarest native mammal. So I guess there's still some in Scotland. But does it say like why they were hunted? Were they hunted for like, because they were pests or were they hunted because people ate them? I really don't know. I'm not sure. It doesn't say... Maybe we should do another another side we'll find talk. Out. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it says that they are larger than the domestic cat, hmm. but I'm like, are they? I mean, I think most cats that don't get overfed, because <laughs> I was free feeding my cats for a while. So I guess if our cats were normal size, if they were normal size, I, I would say that all, the other four cats. Well, no, I take it back because Bacon has gotten some girth on him. He's mm-hmm. he's really <laughs> filled out just this center, just this, just tiny head, head tiny big body. Head. Oh, God. He is an unattractive cat. <laughs> oh, he, he's sweet. He is sweet. Maybe if he was just more fluffy. That's I feel true. like fluffy cats have that advantage. They, they get away with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So they say it hasn't been spotted. So maybe it's there. But in southern England since the 16th century. Jeez. Right? There's some new folks at the Wildlife Trust that are going to be trying to reintroduce them to some woodland areas in Devon and Cornwall, which is where I stay. They say that's the most suitable place for the fluffy predators, they say. And (laughs) they're actually hiring a wildcat officer. So, guys. Oh, my God. I've never wanted to, like... Quitting everything in my life. (laughs) I'm just like, for that job. (laughs) (laughs) On my resume, all it says is I own five cats. What? That's... (laughs) I know, right? That's I'm qualified. That would be the coolest wildlife job, though, honestly. If your card was just like, Megan, what is it? Wildcat officer. Wildcat officer. (laughs) WCO. What's up? That's it. They say they're only found in the remote reaches of Scotland. Mm -hmm. And the population is so small that they say it's no longer viable, according to the IUCN. There's about 30 wild animals showing a high degree of hybridization with domestic cats. So that's one of the concerns is Mm -hmm. they're saying that, um, I'm not going to read the entire article, but you guys should go check it out in The Guardian. But if the concerns are with some of the farmers as far as like some of their livestock, but they say, and I was thinking about chickens. Yes. Because they brought up bigger livestock and they're like, no, the cats won't go after that. They'll probably go after small like rodents and such. But what about the chickens? Oh, yeah, for sure. And then the other concern is feral cats. Mm -hmm. But they said that from the behavior they've seen is they avoid feral cats. They don't mess around. They're like, like, those those guys are not okay. I I mean, I guess. Hmm. So I guess they're not going to bother the wildcats. But they're also, you know, this is like a process. And they're thinking they might be back on the ground in 2025. But between now and then, they're going to look for different populations of feral cats and maybe try to capture and put them somewhere else oh that's fun yeah that's very cool that's nice yeah Yeah. it's pretty cool yeah i want to read more about the other reintroductions they've done especially with beavers because yeah i'm kind of thinking about doing a story on beavers which oh that would be interesting because they're just cool yeah they are cool yeah side note i had a real jerk neighbor when i was growing up we lived on like this little lake it sounds fancy but it wasn't and um, (laughs) and our we had there were beavers there's like a little beaver family one of my neighbors had put you know like metal on the tree but another neighbor would trap them and murder them yeah i really hated that neighbor well so that's it too right i think that in a lot of areas they became you know, extinct from certain areas or mm-hmm. whatever because they People were hunted. They were pests. Yeah, they were pests. Yeah, I remember I grew up going to the lake at the during the summers mm-hmm. and on the border of Arkansas and Oklahoma. And yeah, my 
my grandpa would tell me they would kill the beavers mm. all around. He didn't because he was he didn't like killing. Your stuff. granddad is really he was really nice. I met him the one time I went to Oklahoma. Oh yeah, yeah. We right. delivered that treadmill to his house. Yeah, he's <laughs> so a, random. He's the sweetest. Yeah. So, but because they were worried about them chewing on the boats or mm-hmm. causing problems, but I'm yeah. like, let them live their lives. They're just trying to live. They're just trying to be beavers. Jeez. And it wasn't even like anybody had nice, right? It's not like anybody had really nice trees around their houses. Like it was just like a lot of pine. I mean, Georgia. Yeah. Just pine everywhere. Yeah. Well, we were south of the Piedmont. But anyway. Well, anyway. So yeah, England could have some wild cats. I just think that's. That's fun. That's so cool. I like it. I love that there are some just like wild are in Scotland, but like, are they on the moors? They're just like so <laughs> melancholy, like their fur blowing in the wind. Right. And on they're the like, moors. they're just all like floofy. Yeah. And it's like their face. They have intense. their own uh, tartans. Is that what they're called? <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, God. <laughs> well, all Megan, right. I'm excited to hear your story. Yes. Yes. It's going to be so great. You said you were so. excited to uh, share it. You know what I am? I am excited because to share this story. Because there's some music involved at some point. There is. And it kind of like, you know, I think I am I gravitate towards these particular stories. I mean, I think we talked about it before, but just like mountain stories, I'm kind of into. I'm yeah. kind of into them. I think you are. <clears throat> mm-hmm. I think we have our things that draw us. Yeah. And I saw this and I had never heard of it before. I'm super surprised I hadn't. Okay. So yeah, I read a couple articles. One was from Gear Junkie and one was from the UK Yahoo News. So... UK, whatever. Okay, okay. Uh, The Gear Junkie one is from 2018, and it is called The 10 Deadliest Mountains. And then the UK Yahoo News article is from 2015. It was on the anniversary of the Mount Everest disaster, which we covered. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was entitled The Top 5 Deadliest Mountains, kind of like in honor of the Everest disaster. Kind of random. Mm -hmm. And I'm always like a little more drawn to a top five than a top ten. So we're going to go with the top top five. They take a lot longer. They do. They do. Uh, We're going to start with like the top. And we're going to go back to five. So, so we're going to go number one to five. We're going to go opposite of what we, you know, we usually would end with like the deadliest. Right. But we're going to go with the fifth deadliest. Okay. All okay. Right? So number one, the deadliest uh, mountain is the Annapura in Nepal. It's 26,545 feet high. It is avalanche prone. It is the mountain most likely to kill you. So just in your brain. It's just sitting there. Yeah. The death rate. side eye. <laughs> Just don't even try it. For every five people to reach the summit, two have died trying. It is the highest death rate in the world. 130 people have made it to the summit, in case you needed to know. Wow. So for that 130 people, another, however, whatever, you know, two (laughs) out of those five. (laughs) I I can't do the math. That's a lot of math right there. But I mean... I would feel like if you did that, if you're one of those 130, mm-hmm. you should be in a special club. You, you should, should get be. a jacket. Oh, definitely. A pin. I a mean, lapel pin. A really nice windbreaker. Something. Some gloves. And then your bucket list should be like kind of done. It's over. Yeah. Yeah. You're or good. like you're just doing the ones at the bottom of the list. That, For sure. Yeah. Eating broccoli. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> this peak is only the 10th highest on earth. But it was the first of the 14 8,000ers, so mountains that are over 8,000 meters or 26,200 feet to be scaled. And it was first scaled in 1950. Okay. It's like yeah. a marathon yeah. distance. For sure. All right. So number two is Mont Blanc in France, um, France, Italy. It is 15,781 feet. 
It is Europe's biggest mountain, only half the size of Everest, yet it is by far the deadlier mountain in terms of the total number of deaths. Up to 100 climbers die every year attempting to reach its summit. It's shared between France and Italy, like I said. Almost 8,000 have been killed since records began. What? So probably more than 8,000. Yeah. Uh, This is largely because it's in the Alps, in the heart of Europe. Many more people have attempted to reach the summit than any other. So I think probably it seems like a safe safer mountain to climb because so many people are going but that just means the death toll is higher they just forgot to read that statistic right yeah and then there's this glacier also known as death mountain or the white killer jesus these names man and that is i guess the area where most avalanches happen so is it so that was mont blanc mont blanc what about the other one mount blanc blanc <laughs> Mount Blank. <laughs> oh, We're going gosh. to Mount Blank. <laughs> Definitely, that might. That's have been the one crazy. they read about. Yeah, on for accident sure. for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Number three deadliest is the K two over China and Pakistan on the border. It's You've twenty. Talked about that one. I have talked about K two. I don't know if we talked about any accidents on the K two yet. Okay. But I definitely have mentioned it. It's been on one of your lists. It is. Okay. This is 28,251 feet. It is the world's second highest mountain and marks the border between Pakistan and China. For every four people to reach the summit, one has died trying. This mountain is said to have a curse for female climbers. What? That's rude. It's awful. A Polish climber, Wanda, and her last name is very difficult, so I'm just going to spell it R-U-T-K-I-E-W-I-C-Z became the first woman to reach the summit in 1986. Over the next 18 years, all females, I think there are only five who tried to do this, were killed, three on the descent and two on a nearby mountain shortly after descending. It's like a misogynistic mountain. apparently. But in 2004, Spain's Uridin Pasaban broke the curse. Um, She very crucially remains alive today. Very good. Thank you. Yeah. Gotta be breaking some curses. Like, who put that curse on there? Not cool. Not cool. Uh, Number four deadliest is Everest, the highest mountain, uh, 29,029 feet. It may be the world's highest mountain and the forbidding location of some notable deaths, but surprisingly, it is not the world's most dangerous peak. Of the 3,000 successful attempts to reach the summit, 273 people have died. Um, And if you're interested in more about Everest, we've got an episode on that. But the real kicker for Everest is the death zone where the air is super thin and rescuers can't get to you very quickly or at all in many cases. So that's kind of like that area right before the summit that you have to get up through and then back down. And it's covered in frozen poops. (laughs) So many poops. So many poops. So many poops. Look, go listen to the episode. Oh, my gosh. Here we are at number five, the mountain we're going to talk about today. Wow, we're there. We got there quickly. Yeah, and actually on the the top ten list from the other article, they put this mountain at number seven. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know. I think number five is appropriate for this. Yeah. Because it seems pretty deadly. (laughs) I renumber things sometimes. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm like, you read other articles. There are people have, and you just kind of take the median, right? Yes. Yeah. All right. So, this is um, Ciula Grande in Peru. It is 20,814 feet. It has long been billed as the deadliest mountain in the Americas, north and south, after claiming the lives of dozens of climbers. This peak includes the challenge of a near-vertical western face, which was only conquered in 1985. Ascents on this mountain, so I'm just going to list because we're going to talk a little bit more in depth about it. The first ascent happened in 1936, July 28th, on the North Ridge by some guys from Austria. I'm going to kind of skip over names because there's a, they're just, 
some of these names are really hard, you guys. You can go on the Wikipedia page and read their names, and some of them have links. And you can I mean, read about them. You could them. just try. <laughs> <laughs> Arnold and Irwin. We'll okay, just go perfect. with that. Perfect. Yeah, first names. June 1966 is the fourth ascent that was successful. This is by Schultz and Manfred Sturm. They went up the North Ridge, and they did that via this like smaller summit. Mm-hmm. Uh, like kind of like a neighboring I will talk about it in a second. It's called Sula Chico. And then in 1983, on the west face to North Ridge, after they left from the direct west face, there were, I guess there was some kind of rock fall. So they were maybe trying to go up the west face, but it didn't work out. David Fish Fulton and Scott Flavel were able to make it to the summit. And I assume back down. I think these are like successful ascents. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. In 1985, this is the West Face Summit by Joe Simpson and Simon Yates. June 1999, Mark Price and Carlos Bueller followed that same path that Joe Simpson and Simon Yates took until they got to the middle of the West Face. And then they had to climb this like narrow gully. I guess they ended up having to go like a separate way. Like they had to go a little bit different because they couldn't get up exactly how Joe and Simon had done it. Mm Because I don't know if you remember when we talk about like mountain climbers or like alpinists or whatever, they have these like routes that everybody knows. Yeah. And they usually mark them. And it's like a thing if you're like Mm -hmm. the first person to do a route. So Mm -hmm. anyway, they couldn't do it the way those guys had done it. The flagging tape was gone. It was was already gone. It was already gone. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It was like over 10 years later. (laughs) Just just a little pink tape. Disintegrated. July 13th, 2001. There was a group called Southern Discomfort. They went up the South Face. That was Michael Vanderspeck, Jay Burby, and Jeremy Frimer. July of 2001, a couple days later, there was another group of folks. It doesn't say who it was. I don't think it was those same guys. I I don't think you would climb that mountain twice Mm -hmm. in that short period of time. Uh, They did go up the West Face. July 3rd, 2002, there was a group that went up the Northeast Face. 2002 in August, this was called Mammut Tracks. They went up the West Face. And then the last one that went up the West Face that is listed as a successful thing was in 2007. Some Spanish alpinists, Jordi Corominas and Oriol Barro, they made that first ascent on the West Face of the smaller summit. And then I guess their second ascent going up to the peak. I'm not entirely sure exactly how this happened, but basically they went on the west side of that little mountain to get up to the bigger okay. peak. I okay. Know. I don't think it's the they western face. They went over onto the Chico. Yeah, the Chico. Yeah. So yeah, that's the sub-peak of Ciola Grande. It's called Ciola Chico. It is about 6,260 meters or 20,540 feet. And it's separated from the Ciola Grande by this like cull, which if you will recall from previous mountain episodes, a cull is basically like the valley between two peaks. So it's not like a valley valley. Mm-hmm. It's just kind of like this usually like flatter area between two big peaks. And it's usually kind of dangerous. There are a lot of crevasses in these culls oh, because it's right, right, usually right. made by like gla- glaciers or uh-huh. it's kind of this like flat area that seems like it's going to be cool. But not. But not. Yeah. So there's this that cull between Grande and Chico, and that's considered the easiest route. There's another summit close by called Yerupaya. I think I'm saying that right. Y-E-R-U-P-A-Y-A. And that has been typically a much more dangerous area to try to traverse because there are a lot of these things called bergschruns. 
mm-hmm. or Schrunz. And it's basically where the glacier or at least the snow and ice that is between kind of like up against the mountain separates and creates these crevices. Oh. Yeah. And this area between Europaya and Grande are, it's like insane. I guess they say that since the 1970s, people have been considering it impractical <laughs> to impractical traverse. Adult. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the Bergschrunds, Bergschrunds, I think I'm saying that right, B-E-R-G-S-C-H-R-U-N-D-S, they can extend to the bedrock. Like, it's just like sheets of ice and snow and all this. They can go all the way down to like 330 feet, maybe even deeper, 150 feet, something like that. It can be anywhere from, you know, like 10 feet to 150. No, no Yeah, yeah, there's no uh, sense to it. Right. So in the winter, the avalanches that happen on this mountain can cover the crevasse openings, which then can make, you know, just like really not great, super sketchy places. Yeah. Very treacherous. Yes. And in the case of Ciola Grande, there are many of these. So today we're going to talk about that ascent in 1985 of Joe Simpson and Simon Yates, the first to reach the summit using the Western face, which is a near vertical ice and rock face. It's going to be so much fun. I'm excited. I think it's, I think the thing with these stories for me is I would just never do it in a million years. Yeah. So I'm like, mm-hmm, that's interesting. It like blows my Why? mind that people Why? can do it. Yes. It's yeah. the like. But there are people who are like, must. I can't stop myself from doing this. Yes. I must do this. Yes. It's like, you know, different it's incredible. strokes for different folks. True that. So we'll start out with a little bit of background on our climbers. Joe Simpson was born on April 13th, 1960, to a Scottish father and an Irish mother in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, where his father was stationed with the British Army. From the age of eight, uh, Joe traveled between schools in Britain and various countries where his father was stationed. So he is like a little bit well-versed. That's pretty cool. Yeah, that's kind of neat. When he was 14, he read this book called The White Spider by Heinrich Harrier about the first ascent of the north face of the Eiger. He was like immediately into it. That book was written in 1938. He read it and he was like, I want to do this. Yeah, but at that time it was like what, 60s? Yeah. By the time he's reading. He was like, so it wasn't really. He was like 70 or 70. He was uh, 14, so it would have been 74. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, but I mean, it was still, it's a 70s. Yeah. I think it's written. It was only like 40 years. That's fine. That's true. It's not that that, that that long. Yeah. In my brain, it's like a really long time. Yeah. So yeah, this sparked his passion for the mountains. A fun fact, in 2016, Joe, with explorer Ed Stafford, made a two-part documentary called Burma's Secret Jungle War on the BBC Two, and that retraced the steps of Joe's father, who, when he was with the British, I guess he was with Special Forces, he served with the Chindits fighting a guerrilla war behind Japanese lines in 1944 in the Second World War. So kind of cool, like, he has like some interesting family history. Very much so. So Simon Yates is our second climber. He was born in Croft, Leicestershire, yes. England. In the 1980s, he moved to Sheffield to complete a degree in biochemistry at the University of Sheffield. After he graduated, he did a lot of mountaineering and rope access work to make money. So Joe and Simon meet in 1985. They're in the French Alps, where they were both climbing with uh, different groups of people, but they end up meeting up because, you know, climbers, they all hang out together. They liked each other right away, but hadn't decided to climb together yet. So typically climbing partners will be like people you climb with a lot, right? Yeah, there's a trust. Yeah, there's a trust there. You You have to trust people. You know their skill set. Yes. Good communication. 100%. 
And also, mm-hmm. like, think about, like, you were saying that those people were called the Southern Discomfort, and I was automatically <laughs> like, they were drinking Southern Comfort. Definitely. For sure. And they were, like, <laughs> drunk. Definitely. And somebody was like, I know it would be an awesome name. <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be amazing. Yeah, so Joe and Simon, they actually had a similar method in that they would just climb with anybody. Like, they didn't care who it was. They would just do it. So a little bit different than most people who would want to go climb with like right it kind of reminds me of when we were in peace corps and we had a day where we all went well some people went diving i went snorkeling with another peace corps because we didn't have our diving thing yet our open water yeah certificate yeah but i remember looking down and we have a mutual friend who just kind of was like into diving on her own and (laughs) and i remember watching her separate from her partner and just being like after she got done, I was like, you kept leaving your dive partner. Yeah, you never leave your dive buddy. How are they going to trust you? Like, what's wrong with you? Don't leave your dive buddy. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, it kind of reminds me of that. Like, they seem like the kind of people who just be like, yeah, let's just go, whatever. Right. You know? But if they are both like that, then they're a good match. Good match. Yeah. yeah. So they did. They got together. They talked a little bit more. They felt like it was a natural progression for both of them to go from the Alps to higher ranges. And they both wanted to climb in Peru, specifically in the Andes. And all winter, they worked and saved up money and decided together they wanted to make a mark in the climbing world and attempt the previously unclimbed west face of the Ciola Grande, which is, I mean, at this point, treacherous. You know, it's been being climbed since 1936. Not a lot of successes, only two. Mm-hmm. No one has done the Western face. They were like, we want to go. We're going to forge our own. Like we can totally route. do that. Oh, totally. It's totally fine. They're like, no worries. Yeah. It's all good. Neither of them had been that high before. Like I mentioned before, it's just under 21,000 feet. But they had only been to the French Alps, which I feel like I might have mentioned. It was like 15 someplace between 15 and under 20,000. Yeah. So they're aware of these failures of past climbers on that specific route, the Western face. And they seem to also be super aware that they would be putting themselves at extreme risk. So it's a remote area. There are no, like, available rescue is like 23 hours away. Mm. Minimum. Mm. Um, There's a a lot of danger this far. Yeah. Yeah. It's not like there's this established base camp with a lot of people with radios. I mean, it's 1985, too. So it seems... I'm it pretty sure great. I had like a tape player that was like the little box. Yeah. You know, it was like, a, and you had the little, the push downs. Yeah. The push downs. Yeah. I mean, but ghetto blasters. I mean, that that's mm-hmm. where we're at in this I world. Had, in 1985, I definitely had a tiny one and it was like Care Bears. Pretty sure we still, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I'm pretty sure we still had a eight track player in our house. For sure. Yeah. For sure. And the kind of like VCR that you push down. We didn't have you don't VCR. Like, we don't, know. Oh. No. No, it wasn't until a few years later we Fancy. rented VCRs. <laughs> Amazing. Mm-hmm. Perfect. So they decide it's worth it, though, because they're climbers. You know, they're super stoked on it. They want to go. They get to Peru. And while they're in Lima, they meet this other Englishman. His name is Richard Hawking. He's not actually a climber. He's just kind of like an adventurer, like a hiker. Mm-hmm. Like, he's just there to see the sights and adventure, and he meets them. They get along with him. He's like, I'm not really doing anything. I'm just, like, futzing around here. So he agrees to go along with them, and they're like, hey, how about you set up, like, a base camp for us? You'll keep all of our stuff that we don't want to carry with us all the way up the mountain, mm-hmm. and you'll just chill out, and we're we're going to go up a couple days, come back down. It's all good. We will leave a bunch of weed for you. <laughs> yeah. You'll be fine. <laughs> I should mention that it's kind of close to this, like, lake uh-huh. area. I mean, because it's mountains, right? Like, yeah. there's a lake at the bottom. It's very, very beautiful. It, very, it looks very beautiful. Yeah. I will say it's pretty desolate. Like, there aren't a lot of trees. You know what I mean? Like, uh-huh. this is the Andes. Just, like, a lot of glacier action, rocks and debris. And, That's like, still. 
but like a nice lake. Uh, Richard says that he got along really well with Simon, that he found Joe to be a much more ambitious and intense person and that he didn't really get along with him too well. Like not like they weren't having fights or anything, but he was just like, eh. He's like, you're a lot. You're a lot. Not into it. Uh, So the three of them get donkeys for a portion of this two-day hike. And once it gets too difficult for the donkeys, they start this like pretty desolate hike to the base of Ciela Grande. The mountains are surrounding them. And to the two climbers, they seem very foreboding and way more steep than the Alps. Like, I think maybe they had this feeling of like, oh, wow. We might have made a bad decision. (laughs) It's fine. Let's go back and get the donkeys and head on back. (laughs) Where did they leave the donkeys? That's what I want to know. I don't know if like people went out with them. And then in a later... We're just going to park you right here. (laughs) Right. In in a later version, uh, you know, I don't know if there was like a donkey there at the camp. The way that it seems is that the donkeys weren't with them necessarily at the camp that they maybe there's like a village and they're like can you watch my donkey there's definitely no village like on the way (laughs) Mm -mm. it's like you leave and there's nothing and it's a two-day hike and nothing now this is gonna bother me the rest of the story i they just hit the donkeys on the butt and they ran away it's fine somebody uh, maybe somebody went out with them and took the donkeys back i don't know I hope that they figured it out. I didn't, I, you know, I had that same thought. I really thought about it. I was like, what happened to the donkeys? But where are they? Where but what are did they? they, did they have food? Right? Did you guys carry enough for them? What's happening? Like, what the crap? Yeah. <clears throat> so the way that they're planning on climbing is that alpine style. I'm using quotation marks. She is. Basically, they're only going to have their packs and they're going to be tethered to each other. I mean, they're going up this route. No one's been on it before. There's no like, Things stuck already into the ice for them. They're setting their own path. No flag. They have the flag. They're they the original have the flag. flagging tape yes. people. Yeah. yeah. That's them. So that's what they're going to be working with. And they are, like I said, tethered to each other. So if one falls, wow. probably both are going to fall. That's hardcore. Yeah. And I think I mentioned it. This might be a Patreon episode is the one where they went up the mummery step and passed away because they were tethered to each other and someone fell. I can't remember the names right now off the top of my head, but uh, anywho. Wow. Yeah. So there is a much smaller margin for errors in these kind of conditions, this alpining. On top of that, they're going to be at higher altitudes than either of them have ever been at previously. And at that altitude, they're going to be experiencing a much quicker dehydration. So they're going to have to stop frequently to melt snow to get their ideal four to five liters a day. And it's super time consuming. It, it's something like one hour to melt a couple cups to put into their supply. And they don't have that kind of time. Like, you weren't supposed to do that. I think this is, again, 1985. Uh-huh. So this was their plan. Okay. This is how they're doing it. Okay. They're like, we have our water bottles. <laughs> I assume They weren't just able like to one... Google that first. Yeah. There was no, was a good they idea. were just like, it's cool. We're going to do this. This is how we're doing it. <laughs> right. It's fine. I do know you're not supposed to eat ice or snow because it will lower your internal body temperature. Yeah. And then you're effed. But... This is what they're doing. Okay. And so they have gas with them, but only a limited amount. They only brought enough for their plan to get up in like two days, three days at the most and back down. Okay. All right. Uh, On the first day, they made their way from base camp to the edge of the glacier and up towards the western facing wall side. It was a really good first day. It's like sunny. The weather is really nice. They're feeling super accomplished. Like Simon had said something to the effect of we were just walking. We're just walking. It's great. It's very easy. Yeah. It's like the mountain plays with you, right? It's like, oh, you guys are doing so great. JK. So day two. (laughs) Keep coming. Just keep coming up. It's It's going to be great. Day two is a little bit of a change. This is the day they're doing mostly a climb of the actual face, that vertical wall. And on this day, it starts snowing. Mm. And it's just like, there's not a lot of visibility. There's a lot of wind. They're vertical climbing. 
This is an issue for two reasons. One is that the snow is settling on them, making that kind of snow armor over their suits. And then the other is that they're actually climbing up the vertical rivers of ice between rocks and mountain face. Oh. Yeah. This new powder snow was sticking to the ice which meant that when they put their ice picks and crampons, you know, those like shoe things, Mm -hmm. into the snow, sometimes it wasn't ice. Like sometimes it was just powder snow. Oh. And so you're having to like adjust. It's a lot of adjusting and figuring it out. And it made for a really nerve wracking and slow climb. And Simon was first. He was ahead. He was setting the path and Joe was tethered behind him. And this is kind of an issue because when Simon is working really hard, so Simon is doing a lot of activity. Mm -hmm. He's like trying to find a spot. He's like holding himself, you know, like moving, trying to go here, trying to go there, whatever. But behind him is Joe. He's like 50 meters below and he's just waiting for the path to be made. And so he's waiting and he's getting colder You know, Uh like you need to be moving more. Yeah. And so he's not really as active because he's just following the path and he can only go so fast. Was he like, uh, can you uh, hurry up? (laughs) Can you hurry up? It's basically like anybody who's hiked behind me. (laughs) Probably that's how they feel. It's like, Jesus Christ, can you go a little bit faster? Nah. They just move around you. I'm a slow walk. Yeah. But in this case, he cannot. He's just stuck. So they finished the last 100 meters of climbing for that day and they call it a night and they make these like mini caves in the side of the mountain so they're not in sleeping like tents or anything like they have sleeping bags with them that they're gonna zip up in at night but they basically like carve into like some powder Mm -hmm. you know and make a little cave and then they like stick themselves in there and then in their sleeping bags you know they have these like ice screws or whatever they're holding themselves in that is so wild it's wild And that shields them from the cold and they hypothetically, I guess, sleep. I don't really think you would sleep in that situation. I know that I wouldn't, but whatever. They rest. Right. Uh, The next morning they get up and it's clear outside and they can see what they have climbed the day before. And looking back at their path, they realize like it's way too vertical to be able to climb down. They're Uh not going to be able to climb down that way. It's way too treacherous. Like, they're almost like, how do we make it up this? Yeah. It's insane. So they can only continue up. They can't, like, redirect themselves. And they're going to have to make a decision when they get to the top as to how they're getting back down. Because their original plan was to go up and back down the western face. But now they're like, no, we can't. Like, it's not not possible. Um, At 2 p.m. on day three, they got to the northern ridge. They're both like... Super exhausted. They've been like vertically climbing for basically 24 hours or so. And they considered not going to the summit at this point. They were like, let's just start going down. Yeah. Like, it's just, this is Pulls too much. Or start finding a new route down. Yeah. Yeah. But in the end, they're like, you know, we're we here. We got to go to the summit. Like, it would be so stupid if we don't do it. Right. You know, so they do. They go up to the summit and they have like a celebration moment. And they're like, this is great. Oh, my God. It's like so sunny and nice. Uh At this time, it seemed impossible. Like I said, they're going to go down that western face. So they decided to go down the northern ridge. And just for context, this was the descent of the group from 1936. But all subsequent western face climbers that have actually done the western face, which I think there was only like two, they ended up rappelling down the western face. Oh, yeah. Instead of climbing. So I don't know exactly why. I mean, the one that was like after them, I don't think they did go down the Western face, but it was much later. So it might be that they had better gear. I was going to say, did they have the right gear (laughs) to do it? And they, so for these guys, there was something, I cannot remember the name of it. I think it'll come up later, but they had like a way to lower themselves, but it wasn't the same as repelling. It's, it's something different. Not quite the same as like, you know, 
just rappelling off a wall like Mission Impossible style, I assume. Yeah, that would be cool. <laughs> right? And to me, that would be such a better way to go down because it's faster. way faster. Way faster. Yeah. But I don't know. We're just, we're just judging them. We're like, they should have put a zip line at the bottom to with that guy where he's at. That's true. That'd be fun. So they start the, their descent down this northern ridge and they're heading to another call. That's the one that's between the Ciola Grande and that. Like, not the Chico, the one that I mentioned before that has all the Bergschrunds. Oh, ooh. Yeah, so that's where they're headed. No. Yeah. Do they know that? I mean, I assume they have maps, so they like, maybe would like know. Bergschrunds. Yeah, I mean, they would know that this is a little more treacherous because mm-hmm. it was, like, after the 70s that people were like, don't go this way. Hmm. But, I mean, it was only the 80s. It was 85, yeah. So maybe they didn't get the message yet. <laughs> they didn't get the memo. <laughs> they didn't get that newsletter that, that <laughs> month. I don't know. And they actually originally were like, oh, we're just going to trot down this mountain. Like, it seems easy. They're up at the top looking down. They're like, absolutely. Let's do it. We're going to walk down. Like, there's not going to be a lot of climbing Mm -hmm. or like, it's not going to be hard, I think is what they were thinking. It looks easy to them. And they're not tethered together anymore. They are. Oh, they still are? The whole time? The whole time? Oh, okay, okay. But as they're going down, they quickly realize that they were totally wrong. It is extremely steep on either side of the ridge the whole way down. And on top of that, clouds are rolling in. There's going to be another like snowstorm happening. Yeah. About an hour after they are descending down from the summit, they are in whiteout conditions. Oh, no. Always fun. There's a small break in the clouds for like a second, and it shows them that they were actually lost and that the ridge that they were on is now above them where they should be. Is above them. Like they've gone down too far, like too steep on one side. Uh They need to be above uh, wherever they're supposed to be above them. But Simon realized that they're actually on this overhang of ice and snow and they were not entirely attached to the mountain. They were just on snow. At that moment, the snow gives way and he falls 1,500 meters, almost 4,500 feet. But the ropes between him and Joe catch him and he's able to climb back up like they everybody makes it Un- oh, it's super unnerving my god but they make it back up to the ridge and actually there's <laughs> this thing where simon had said like i fell and i'm looking and i can see there and i say joe there's the ridge you know like <laughs> it helped them find it like, i don't while know he was falling yeah just i don't know oh my insanity god. yeah they make it back up to the ridge and they realize they're really still pretty high up uh-huh. like they're supposed to be back at base camp at this point but they're not. They're still up 6,000 meters, uh, 19,685 feet. That's not good. And they're supposed to be at base camp at this moment. Well, I mean, they just had like a little setback. A little setback. Yeah. Mini. Uh, that night, they run out of gas, like cooking gas. Oh. Not good. No. The thing that they were using to cook their water to drink. Oh. Yeah. The next morning, they make the plan to get back to base camp. They're like, okay, we have got to like snap it up. Like we only have so much time now. Joe is ahead of Simon, and he comes to this vertical wall that they're going to have to climb down. So he gets on his hands and knees, and he lowers himself down the side of the cliff, and he's putting his crampons in and his axe, ice axe in, right? And he's like, hits it. First one's good. Hits the second one good. Third one, it makes this weird sound. And he's like, that was weird. That was a weird sound. That's not a good sound. Pulls it out, and all of a sudden, he's falling really hard. Wait, he falls really hard? He falls really hard. He falls. <laughs> he's, yeah, he's just falling. He just falls And he real lands hard. really hard. <laughs> Maybe I'm trying to say he's falling fast. He and then he lands fell really hard. fast? Yeah. What was the weird sound? 
like, you know how when you're trying to find the stud in a wall? Uh-huh. And I think in this case, you want it to sound like the stud, but it was more of like a hollow, like thunking sound. Yeah. Yeah. Uh... So he lands and there's this intense pain that shoots up his leg. He's screaming. Uh-huh. Uh, Simon can hear him, gets to the cliff, looks down because, you know, they're still tethered together. Um, and he sees Joe's face. Uh, and what they thought might be a sprain turns out to be a broken leg. Simon says that the look on Joe's face was one of fear, panic, and understanding. Like, understanding in a way that he's like, you can leave me. Oh, yeah. Like, I'm going to die now. It's okay. That's, I feel like that's, when you take those kind of risks, mm-hmm. and you're like, yeah, I'm just going to do, do this, you know, mm-hmm. you have to know yeah. that this could be the my last of days. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that they did. What, what's crazy to me is that they're in their 20s. Mm-hmm. And me as a 20-year-old would have been like, help me. <laughs> you know, like, yes. I have things to live for. <laughs> but, I have a lot of things to do. But Simon describes Joe's face as being, like, resolute almost. You mm-hmm. know, like, okay, it's okay. You know, like, you can leave me. Wow. I get it. Um, and to be honest, Simon thought about leaving him because they were still so high up. And they're out of provisions. They're behind schedule. Like, so many things, right? Was he like... You got to leave me. And he's like, you didn't say Simon says. <laughs> Sorry, I've been waiting this whole time to say something. <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> that was perfect. Uh, instead, Simon gives him some Tylenol. I mean, in one of the articles, it says paracetamol because, you know, English. And they come up with a plan. Some Tylenol? I'd been like... <laughs> Why did we leave all the weed with that guy back <laughs> <Right>? in the face? <laughs> Give me something stronger. I need real painkillers. Around this time, Richard, if you'll remember, is still at base camp. It's just having a great time. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, they were supposed to be back like last night and they uh-huh. are not back yet. And he even thought like, I think they died. Like, what if they died? What if they died? I got to get back and get the donkeys. Like, <laughs> he's like, what am I going to do? Like, and then he says, if one of them, if one of them comes back, I hope it's Simon. Oh, <laughs> yeah. He's like, Ugh. he just had a feeling. He was uh-huh. like, I just, hopefully it's Simon that makes it. Like, that's, that's how that's he feels. Kind of, I know, well, right? I mean. But he was honest about okay. it. So, so what they do up on the mountain is Simon ties a knot in the rope between them at a point. And he would lower Joe down about 45 meters, that's 150 feet, where Joe would get a holding, you know, just kind of like hold himself with this three, because he cannot use the one leg. And then Simon would move the knot over this kind of like fastener in between them and then climb down. He would tug the rope three times. Then Joe would like let himself go. He would lower Joe down again. And this, wow. so they're like, I think it's something like 300 feet between them. Uh-huh. And there's still, the conditions are like snowy. It's like stormy. Mm-hmm. Right. So they can't really see each other very well. And they you can't hear. There's a lot of wind. It's like chaos around them. They can't really hear each other. So they're just going to try and figure, you know, like, so he's going to lower him about 150 feet, tug on it, get down, you know, keep doing this. Um, and this worked pretty well for for a little while. And I think in those cases where someone is injured to the point they can't walk, you're in such harsh conditions, no hope of rescue. Some folks might just abandon that climbing partner. Right. But Simon was really trying his hardest. I think there are a lot of people who would have just left. Yeah, but he's a good guy. But he's like, you know what? I like this guy. We're friends. Like, I yeah. have to help him. Yeah. So they continue this way until it's getting darker and the wind and snow is picking up. They are exhausted. Joe is in severe pain. Mm. Simon has frostbite. Like, yeah. they're not doing well. 
This last lower down, Simon didn't know, but he was lowering Joe over a cliff with a 45-meter drop that's a little over 150 feet. And below him is a massive crevice, one of those bergschrunds that we talked about before, Uh where the ice and snow separated from the mountain. There's a giant crevasse. And there were like, there was like a family of grizzly bears. (laughs) Just all (laughs) the everything, All the things. When Simon would lower Joe, um, he would make a kind of seat into the snow to like give himself a, what's the word I'm looking for? Like a, you know, like a base. Yeah. Like a sturdy base. Mm -hmm. So he's sitting in the snow this time. He's waiting on Joe to find a foothold, but the line is still taut. Because as soon as Joe would find the foothold, the line would slack and then they would continue, right? Mm -hmm. But this time, there's no slack. And he's waiting and the snow starts to shift underneath him and he's waiting for 45 minutes later and he's shifting some more and he couldn't figure out what had happened. They can't hear each other. They can't see each other. Mm -hmm. It's dark. It's like 930 at night. And he keeps thinking like Joe must not be getting a foothold. You know, maybe he passed out. Maybe something happened to him. He has no idea. But he knows that if he keeps holding on, he's going to be pulled off the side of the mountain. Like, he doesn't know what's down there. He doesn't know what's going on. After over an hour and a half of waiting and struggling, he's got frostbite in his fingers. It's He's also in pain. Mm-hmm. Just a horrible situation. He realizes, remembers, that he has a pen knife in his backpack. And he takes it out and he cuts the rope. Oh. Uh, then he digs a snow hole in the slope where he had been sitting. And he spent the rest of the night there. He didn't sleep. He's like racked with guilt. He has no idea what has happened to Joe. Yeah. He's pretty convinced that he died. Yeah. And he's super scared and he's confused. The next morning, he moves down the ridge and, you know, like the snow is kind of let up and he can see where he lowered Joe and that it's actually a cliff and Joe would have been dangling. And below that is a 150 foot drop and a massive crevasse. And he makes the horrific realization that he cut the rope. He cut the rope and made him killed his friend, dropped him into that crevasse. Yeah. And so he calls out Joe's name, but he doesn't hear anything. And later he would say that he didn't even think to walk towards where Joe would have fallen and to call out. He was exhausted, emotional, racked with guilt. He was like, I got to keep going down. I have to get back to base camp. I have to tell his parents that he died. Like, Mm -hmm. just awful. So he gets to the bottom of the glacier. It's riddled with crevasses, those bergschrunds, all that stuff. All these other snow and ice formations are really unsafe. He's like dehydrated, you know. He's in bad shape. He's in rough shape, yeah. Super distraught. And he's also, at that point, trying to figure out what his story is going to be. He actually thought at one point that he's going to, like, not tell people that he cut the rope. Mm -hmm. Like, he was also thinking that what if he fell into a crevasse on his hike back down? That would be karma. That would, you know, like, he would deserve that. And he was trying to, like, figure out what he was going to do. And I just want to mention that I thought this was interesting when I think back on the Everest story and how there were some accusations about people coming out cleaner than maybe they actually were in the reality of the situation. Like there were those people who were like uh, the Japanese team. I think it was Mm -hmm. a Japanese team that had died. And there was like another group that was like, oh, you know, they didn't save them. But they said that they never saw those people. It was like a whole thing. It was like a mini part of that story. Mm -hmm. just I was just thinking about it, that he was like really struggling with like, hey, I'm the one who's telling the story. So this is what the story is going to be. Right? Right. Anyway, so he's carefully trudging along the edge of the glacier. He sees Richard, who at that point was like, I have to go climb this mountain to find them. He has no idea what he's doing, you know. (laughs) So he's like coming up. He's like, oh, my God, you're alive. You know, they have like this moment. And um, Simon, like I said, has frostbite on three fingers. Richard said his face was unrecognizable. Oh, man. Like he has 
some bad uh, bruising and some stuff happening to his face, like frostbitey type stuff. And so they go back to the camp and Simon insists on staying at the camp and resting. He tells Richard the whole story, how he tried to hold the rope. And, um, you know, it was apparent that he was going to die. They were both going to die. He didn't have a choice and that he cut it. And Simon said that Richard never judged him for this decision, that he actually was like, I understand. Mm-hmm. What we need to do now is get you to help. We need to get you to a doctor. We need to get out of here as quickly as possible. But Simon was like, no, we're staying at this campsite because, one, he needs to rest. Yeah. You know, he needs to recuperate a little bit to even make it out of there. Also, he was, like, grieving. Yeah. And a couple of days after Simon had arrived, he wanted to do, like, a ceremony for Joe. And so they ended up burning his clothes, like, making, like, a little burn pile, almost like, a, you know, a pyre, I guess. Oh, yeah. In, like, honor of him. And they, you know, said some words and stuff like that. And then he was like, okay, we should leave tomorrow. I need to talk to his family and tell them, you know, what's going on. Like, I have to get to a phone, have to get to a doctor, all this stuff. So early morning on the fourth day, you know, they're planning to leave that morning. It's dark outside still. Richard heard what he thought was a dog barking that then he says morphed into like a ghostly voice on the wind yelling Simon's name. Oh my God. And he sat up and he was like, am I having a dream? Like what? I so I know this guy was probably totally fine, but I the whole time I picture him down there just doing drugs and <laughs> yes. just tripping out <laughs> yeah. and just hanging out waiting for his friends. I mean, because it's eighty five. Come yeah. on, yeah. What else? Does I he mean, do? he's down there. He's tripped a little. He's stoned the whole time. <laughs> he's like, what is happening? And so at this point, he's yeah. like, is it the drugs? What's going on? But in real life, maybe he just was fine. He just right. didn't do anything. But it's in true. my in my mind, that's how this was playing <laughs> he out. He was on shrooms. Oh, totally. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, he sits, sits up in bed. He's like, this is a dream. But then Simon hears it too. Simon's like, holy shit, someone's calling my name. Oh my God. And he's like, that's got to be Joe. But it can't be Joe. Because it's been four days. Like five, really. Since he came so, Yeah. Oh my and he's God. like, there's no way. Like, we're having a like shared hallucination. So they go outside to investigate. Simon comes across Joe. His leg is, you know, wrapped with a sleeping pad because remember, it's broken. Mm -hmm. He's yelling Simon's name. Simon loses. He starts screaming at Richard. He's like, you know, effing get over here. Grab that, you bastard. Like, freaking. And he kills him because he doesn't want to deal with the guilt. (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. I'm ruining the story. I'm sorry. So no. So they get him picked up. Simon is like hugging his upper body. He's like, oh my God, I thought you were dead. Like, blah. he's like losing it. Aww. He's like, Richard, get his legs, which I would not want to be the person who gets this guy's legs. He's in insane pain. Okay. They get him to the camp. They put him into a tent. You know, they start helping him. Okay. Do you want to know what happened to Joe? Yeah, of course. I'm waiting for you to tell me. He just fell in a yeah. floof of snow. <laughs> just a floof of snow. And some fine. reindeer got him and pulled <laughs> they him picked out. Him and they took him down. Yeah. It was great. Um, so yeah, let's go back to the mountainside. Joe is climbing down that first cliff face where he puts his ice axe into the wall and it makes that weird sound and he falls. Okay. He says, my right leg locked backwards, my crampons maximizing the force. It pinched my tibia up into my femur and carried on through my knee joint. I tore my anterior cruciate ligament, damaged my perineal nerve, destroyed two menisci in my knee, and fractured my heel and ankle. The pain was excruciating. That is insane. That's a lot of parts. Mm -hmm. And he's totally internally bleeding, like Mm -hmm. immediately. He was really lucky. It wasn't a compound fracture, you know, where it breaks the skin. Uh It was just inside his leg. Just basically his bottom leg went up through his 
top leg. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah. Oof. He says, I was in denial at first, so I tried to stand and I felt all these bones going. When Simon appeared, he asked if I was all right. And for a split second, he thought about being like, yeah, I'm good. (laughs) (laughs) But he said, when I told him I'd broken my leg, his whole expression changed. Before, we were equal partners working together. Now, suddenly, one of us was an invalid. We had a 3,000-foot face to get down. He was thinking I was dead. This is when they came up with the lowering system. And then Joe was trying to go as fast as Simon could lower him because he knew that they were moving against the clock. So he's like excruciating pain. Okay. I broke my leg Mm -hmm. in like, when was it? 2010? Yeah. 2010. Yeah. Like late end of the year, broke my leg. And it was just 2011. No, it was 2010 because I had the boot in 2011. Oh, okay, okay. And it was just like a spiral fracture, like no bones rammed up into each other mm-hmm. and that sucked for the like i don't know 20 minute ride to the hospital i was like <laughs> i'm gonna die like this dude i this is insane this yeah. is insane okay so he knew that they had about 10 more times to do this whole process like after an hour they were down only 300 feet so he was like, we got to do this another 10 times to get off of the mountain and low enough to then start the hike back to base camp. Mm-hmm. So he says, we didn't realize we were in line with this ice cliff sticking out from the slope. At 9.30 p.m., Simon lowered me off the edge and I came to a stop about 100 feet of air. Well, this it's really, I, in one article it says 100 feet, another one it says 150. Basically, he's staring down at this crevasse below him and like a little bit of a shelf mm-hmm. uh, about 150 feet below him of like snow and ice or whatever. The knot had reached his friction device. My weight was on the rope. He couldn't get the knot over. We were locked into the system and going to die. Simon hung on for what seemed like a lifetime. Then I found myself free falling. I hit the ridge of the crevasse and went through. I smashed into an old collapsed part of the roof and I stopped. I saw the hole in the roof, 70 plus feet above me and thought Simon has gone flying. He's gone because he would have fallen like 300 feet. Wow. Right. Because he was like way up there. Yeah. So Joe, when he landed, was on this like ledge and it had steep drops on three sides. It was kind of amazing that he landed on this on something on something and not just like free fall, you know, to his death. Mm -hmm. And so he very quickly put an ice screw in and like kind of cramped himself, like stuck himself onto the wall that Mm -hmm. was behind him. Right. So he's like not going to fall off of one of these sides. He pulled on the rope thinking that it would be attached to. Simon's body. And so there would be like a resistance and he would be able to pull himself out of the uh, hole by uh-huh. the rope using the counterweight of Simon's body. Uh-huh. But he pulled and pulled and it came down and then he saw it was cut. It was cut. And he was like, oh, <laughs> and people asked him, were you angry with Simon? And he says, I wasn't. I thought, thank Christ, Simon's alive. Apart from being my friend, he was useful to me alive. He might be coming down to look for me. Then I thought to myself, shit, he won't find you in the dark. So you have to scream his name as loudly as you can every five minutes. So Joe ends up spending the night clipped into the crevasse. He's turning on his headlamp every few minutes. And he says it was so scary to him. Like, it's just dark. You can't see anything. Uh Below you is this massive hole, just black hole into nothingness. Oh, my God. You know, and he was like upset. He was very emotional. And in pain. Insane amount. An insane amount of pain. Yeah. Um, He said, crevasses are scary places to be in, especially if the thought creeps in that you're not getting out. I had this image of a long death and it burnt me to pieces. I'm really quite ashamed because I broke down. So essentially he has like a tantrum at this point. He's like, 
screaming and cursing and totally doing exactly what I would do in that situation. <laughs> um, just like the frustration, you know, uh-huh. of like, I'm going to die here. This is, I did this, you know, yep. like I chose this. This mm-hmm. is my choice. Like, wow, you're an idiot. So yep. he had a moment, which totally understandable. Yes. No one's judging him for that. So the sun rises. He starts to feel a little bit of hope because like he, he can, can see, see stuff. things. Yeah. yeah. And every few minutes he's calling out for Simon in anticipation that Simon might be down and would be able to find him. But by 930 in the morning, he realizes Simon would have been here by now. He would have found me. So he must think I'm dead. And mm-hmm. I think about this moment and that Simon had come down and didn't walk over. And like, maybe if he had walked over, but then you're like, how would they have figured that out? You know, how, yeah. and then you're still, he still has a broken leg. Like, how is this going to work for, you know, are they both going to get down? I, I kind of get it. I get it. I just want you to know that I would have looked for you. Thank you. Okay. I appreciate that. You're welcome. I forgot to mention that when he was dangling in the air before the rope was cut, he had actually tried to use these like this method of using like these tiny ropes to pull himself up. Like you can kind of wrap them around the main rope and Mm -hmm. then use them as like a way to like leverage yourself up. And he ended up dropping one of them in the process of it. And that's when he was just like, I'm going to die now. (laughs) Like, (laughs) I think that's when he just like fully, you know, accepted his fate. Yeah. Yeah. And so he then again tried to do this kind of method of like, I'm going to try and climb up. But where he fell, it was essentially vertical going back up to the hole that he fell into. And it was just too hard. He couldn't do it. He he fell. He like went up, fell. He's like on his bad leg, like all the things. Because when he looked down, all he could see was darkness. And he was thinking like, I'm probably going to have to go down. Yeah. Because I'll go down. And then I'll see what there is, right? And he doesn't even know. Is it 50 feet? Is it 500 feet? He has no idea. Mm-hmm. He says, I didn't have the courage to just jump off. <laughs> no. Because he did consider it. He was like, I'll just die. You know, like, oh, I'll just end it. He clipped in his ab seal device. So this is the thing that helps lower them down, mm-hmm. this ab seal device. But deliberately chose not to tie a knot in the end of the rope. So basically, he was like, if I get to the end of my rope, which is, uh, what was it, like... 300 foot rope or something it was 300 but then it was cut but simon would have cut it close to him okay so it would have been almost the full length okay he was like i'm gonna if it's further than that right i'll just drop off Mm -hmm. and that'll be the end he's like i'm not gonna climb back up and spend six days dying like it's not gonna happen so about 70 feet below he goes down the hole he gets down about 70 feet there's like a spot and he can get off And he sees a light. I think it was at like a 65 degree angle. Mm -hmm. And he sees this opening and he's like, I can do that. I can climb that. It's totally possible. And he scooches over from where he went down. There's like kind of a like a ledgy type area. Mm -hmm. And he scooches over and he realizes that he's actually on like a very thin layer of ice and snow that are just that's just kind of like stuck in this much deeper crevasse. Uh, and so he's having to be like super gentle and he gets yeah. over, you know, and he starts his climb. He says, I stuck my head out of the crevasse at about one o'clock in the afternoon and I sat there giggling maniacally. <laughs> so he gets out. He gets out of the crevasse. He like comes out of this hole. You know, it's like the sun is shining down on him. He's All like, right. oh, my God. You know, he's like, ha ha. <laughs> Not dead yet. Not dead yet. He says he looks over to the left and he sees Simon's rope that he was using to get down. He says, I know now I was on my own. You don't come back for a corpse. That was a sobering moment. 
Mm-hmm. And he's still a really long way from base camp. There's a mile and a half of crevasse glacier that he's got to go over. Then six and a half miles of like mounds of debris and rocks. Six that the glacier, and a half yes, miles? That the glacier has pushed down of just like rocks. With that leg. With that leg. Oh, I can't even imagine. So he says, part of me was pragmatic, thinking how far I could go, what state my body was in, and how little food I had. My conclusion was, you won't make it. But I thought, if you die here, you'll be buried in snow and disappear forever. Nobody will ever know what's happened to you. I crawled for the next three and a half days. Uh, He says, when you're alone for a long time, no data coming in, no conversations, nothing to read or see, your mind drifts. I would think I'd rested for five minutes, but I'd look at my cheap, crappy watch and 45 minutes had gone by. I went, right. I'm about to get to that crevasse in 20 minutes, and I'm going to get to that red rock in 20 minutes. I created structure and discipline. Sometimes I'd beat the target time that I made up. Other times I'd lose and I'd be pissed off. But it kept me from the big picture of you're completely effed. Baby steps. Baby steps. Yeah. Yeah. And this is the part of the story that I'm like really excited about. He said that for the last day or so, he had this song playing in his head. Oh, God. It's by Boonie M. It's called Brown Girl in the Ring. It's from a 1978 album called Night Flight to Venus. I'm just going to play the chorus for you. Do we know this song? I had never heard the song before. This is it, guys. This This is is amazing. It's the moment we've been waiting for. That is amazing. So that was in his head, but he couldn't get it out. I honestly, I I love it. That's such an upbeat song. It's a super upbeat song. And he's I, like, I got 20 minutes to do this. He's just like singing it. I think to him, though, it was like really annoying. He was like, I cannot get the song out of my head. Like it was like a moment where he was like, I don't want this song in my head. Like he hated it. But it was too bad. It was too bad. It was what came into his it's brain. A, and it's also got like a, a cadence to it, yes. probably, that just helps you. Yes. Because, yeah, I think that is, that's a thing. Like, yeah. what's, what song would you have? And it's it's such an upbeat. And I think that that band, Boney M, is like Caribbean mm-hmm. um, or African. I'm not sure. But you can hear in the very beginning of the song, there's some like steel drummy type yeah, sounds. Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, that's, yeah, that's real catchy. They have yeah. a lot of, just FYI, they have a lot of albums. Really? Yeah. Huh. I've never heard of this band before, but they must be super popular in the UK because it was like a radio song uh-huh. that people are like new. I don't know. Anyway. I think we, we probably have some listeners that are like, you guys don't know that song. This guy's is like super popular song, you guys. All right. So on the last night, he felt like he was starting to fail. He was actually about a 10 minutes walk from base, from the base camp, but it took him nine hours to finally get there. He said he was in and out of consciousness. He was experiencing insane hallucinations at this point. Some of them were really enjoyable. Um, Like at one point he was looking up at the stars and he was just kind of like gliding through the universe. And he describes it as like the moment where he understood that he was a part of everything around him. Oh, he was, yeah, he was having a minute. He was, yeah. He was connecting with the universe. Fully, fully. He was like, I am this rock. I am those stars. I am everything. Like that was kind of his like. All we are is dust in the wind. A hundred percent. Yeah. And so, and others he said were really weird and kind of frightening. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. He said he stopped looking at his watch. At that point, he lost all sense of purpose. He felt like he probably at that point was dying. And he started to just shout out for Simon and Richard. 
he kind of had an idea of where he might be, that he was close, but he wasn't really sure. And he thought, even if they hear me, why would it occur to them that it was me? I'd been dead for four days to them. Mm -hmm. And that was the point where he felt just completely crushed, like he was just going to give up. And he said, in a funny way, it was a confirmation of what I'd thought when I started crawling. You are not getting out of this. It was a lonely place to be. I remember debating whether to get into my sleeping bag, but I thought if I did, I wouldn't get out of it again. I thought that if I crawled down to the riverbed, somebody would definitely find my body. I wasn't expecting to meet anybody, but just crawl to the end of the game to die there. It was quite horrible. I inadvertently crawled through our campsite latrine and got covered in human feces. Human shit really does stink, but it acted like smelling salt. And suddenly I knew where I was <laughs> within a hundred yards of where the tents had been. Oh my God. Yeah. He got in the poo. Yeah. And it that's, was like, oh shit. That's pretty unfortunate. It is. But apparently it was kind of fortunate because it woke him up enough to be like, okay, now I'm I'm so close. Like they have to be here. He actually thought, okay, why would they even be here? But then he he didn't really take into account that probably Simon would want to rest before they left, you know? Right. Like he probably would be physically okay-ish, right? He would just be exhausted, but he would need to rest. Um, and he said, I saw a red and yellow dome-like thing that I thought was a spaceship. Then these white beams came out and I heard Simon's voice. People have this idea of what survival is about, but the reality is that it's brutal. You get destroyed on several levels. Physically, you're not putting any fuel in and eventually you just stop working. On a psychological level, you go through stuff that really Fs with your head. You don't only learn that you're strong, but you're incredibly weak too. You're breaking down all the time. I had accepted the situation, so it was just a shock when Simon and Richard suddenly appeared. I collapsed. And they were like, bro, why do you have poop all over you? <laughs> what, what is happening? What kind of survival skill was that? <laughs> like, immediately you need a shower. <laughs> Joe ended up losing 35% of his body weight. And wow. I did read in one article that it was like 42%. So I'm not sure which number is correct. That's but either lot. way, that's a lot. That's a lot. He was dangerously close to going into ketoacidosis. And he says, I needed a salt and sugar drip, but we didn't have any tubes or needles. And we didn't know at the time but there's a simple way of doing it. You and I both know what that way is. Do you remember? What? Enema. An enema. Oh, oh. Yeah. It's been a while. It's been a while. I know. So we talked about that. Yeah. So they didn't think like, oh, we should give him an enema. So they actually didn't, you know, they just tried to like kind of feed uh -huh. him a little bit at a time, clean him up, all that stuff. He said, with people to look after me, I suddenly stopped having to survive. I got quite scared, probably because I'd been running on endomorphins and, and adrenaline for four days. Uh, barely conscious, we rode a mule for two days. So I guess at some point they got to a mule. or The, maybe mules, the mules were just were, hanging out. Just hanging out. They spent 23 hours in a pickup truck getting oh. to the hospital. Yeah. Oh. I was quite pissed off. I wanted to sleep, but Simon was so worried about the state I was in. He wanted me to get medical help. The bloody mule walked into everything. I just thought... When the F is this going to end? 11 days after I'd broken my leg, I got to the hospital. 11 days. You know they had to probably re-break his leg. They had like, to, does like, he still have a leg? Did they fix he, it? He does. He went through many surgeries. He still has a leg. In Peru. Yeah. Oh, I, I don't know if it was like Peru and then also in Britain. I'm assuming that they like patched him as best they could in Peru and then he went home. I don't I know. I bet you he was in a hospital in Peru for a, for while. a while. I mean, they, have, yeah. they probably have decent hospitals oh, yeah. in the city. Yeah. Sure. Good that times. wild. A lot of people say an experience like that must have changed your life, your attitude to death. You must feel stronger. All it taught me is that I don't want to know my own death. I also learned that Simon and I were bloody good mountaineers because if we'd been bumbling amateurs, we would not have gotten out of that shit. 
Afterwards, people decided Simon was in the wrong, but they had no understanding of what actually happened. So following this, he writes a book called Touching the Void. He wrote it in about seven weeks. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We've heard of that. I've heard of that. I I hadn't heard of this before. Huh. But part of the reason why he wrote the book was to defend Simon's choices. And then the other part was that he just wanted to explain his story, right? Mm -hmm. And he wanted to get it out. And he thought that people were going to be pissed off with him for being a wuss or something. But it became this huge success. It taught him that he was a good writer. You know, he was a good public speaker. He gave Mm -hmm. slideshows in the climbing community. He got into corporate speaking. And then that's how he's been making his living basically since then. And he says standing and talking in front of people is not an easy thing. And that's why he likes it. Oh, okay. Yeah. There's a documentary or a movie. Yes. Okay. I'd heard of it. I think that's. Yeah. That's how I was like, oh. The book was adapted into a documentary in 2003 and then again into a play in 2018. I did watch the documentary. It's on YouTube. You can watch all of it. It's great. Okay. It's really great. They do a recreation of everything. And it's, I'm like, how, who are these people that do these recreations? Like they literally are climbing a mountain. I'm like, did you, they didn't do it in a studio. It was like a climbing. They all went climbing together. Like the cameraman, like everybody Wow. to film these scenes. And I'm like, geez. That just seems like a recipe for disaster. Just build a wall inside of a studio, you know? Where's James Cameron when you need him? Get it together. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Just, right? Just a pool for Titanic. Yeah. Yeah. That door or that piece of wood, whatever it was. Yeah. Joe says, the reason I like mountaineering is not because it's dangerous or scary, but because there's a price to pay if you screw up. It's about mastering a skill. And now I'm a skilled speaker. What really changed my life was not the shit time I had in Peru, but that if I hadn't happened or it hadn't happened to me, I probably wouldn't be financially secure. I know I should have a greater philosophical insight, but that's the truth. I'm like, Joe is kind of an interesting guy. So practical. Yeah. I like, He's like it. This is great. I now I make a living off of this thing that maybe could have killed me. And I mean, almost did. He probably before that he had no idea how he was going to make a living. Yeah, just climbing mountains. He's just being a dude for sure. Yep. When asked, Joe said, "Would I have cut the rope in Simon's situation? Without a doubt. My only criticism is that it took him more than an hour to remember the only knife we had was in the top pocket of his rucksack. The real question is, if it had been in my rucksack, would I?" have cut the rope knowing that Simon would be pulled down. I don't think I would. Mm-hmm. I was like, that's an interesting thought. Interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, but he, yeah, knowing his friend would be pulled down, but he was already injured. Yeah. So. he Basically, he's like, I wouldn't have sacrificed myself. Yeah. You know, I think he didn't think he could have done that. Mm-hmm. You know. So after a lot of time in the hospital, Simon and Joe returned to England and Simon, like Joe mentioned, was immediately villainized in the media. Oh. So they tagged him as the man who cut the rope, and even more so after the documentary came out. So like in the 80s, people kind of, you know, talked about him in a negative way. And then the documentary comes out, and it like restirs the pot. Simon felt let down by the director of Touching the Void. He said that the movie was one-sided, selectively edited, and worst of all, left cinema audiences with a powerful and enduringly wrong message right at the end of the movie. Just before the credits, a message appears, and it does. It says, Simon returned home to England and faced strong criticism from the climbing community. Simon says that is absolute nonsense. Other climbers have always been fine with me. They completely understand what I did. Ultimately, I put myself at great risk to try and save Joe. He goes on to say, I found the movie economical with my side of the story. 
In the film, you have a very little idea of the risk or length of time I took lowering Joe down the mountain. It was dispensed with a very short period of time. What you leave out can have a more powerful effect on the story than what you put in. It's really true. When you watch the documentary, it was kind of like, oh, Simon just like cut the rope. Uh, It's very quick, you know? It doesn't really represent the struggle of lowering Joe all day, all day long, mm-hmm. you know, like trying to get everything. It doesn't represent his and then actual waiting struggle. for and then, like almost two hours. Yeah. With nothing. And knowing you're going to die. Yeah. And no communication. Yeah. So he goes on to describe the arduous task of lowering his frostbitten fingers, the rope digging into his harness and legs as he sat still in the snow, stuck holding the dead weight of his friend, moving ever closer to death with every passing minute. That he didn't even know if he was still alive. Yeah. Yeah. And I think he assumed like, oh, he's he's dead. He's like, why hasn't he done anything for, t- yeah. Yeah, for that long? Yeah. There was little room for morality in the decision to cut the rope, he says. I think people read or think far too much into it, really. The actual decision wasn't really a decision. It was an anticlimax, I'm afraid, but that's the reality of it. He says he knew that the average cinema goer was never going to be able to properly understand the cutting of the rope. The layman gets very excited about the morality of the decision without completely understanding the extremity of the mountain environment and the position you are in. And I totally know what he's saying without ever knowing the situation he was in. That that decision is like... You both knew before you even went up, mm-hmm. like, this is what's going to happen. You if might have to wrong. make this kind of decision. Yes. Yeah. Yep. So Joe has always defended Simon over the decision to cut the rope and is adamant that he would have done the exact same thing. So he had said it earlier that he, yeah, if he were in mm-hmm. Joe's position, he would have totally done it. Yeah. And in the case you were wondering if they remained friends. Yes. So they did for some period of time, but they drifted apart. And it had been many years since they had seen each other when the documentary was going to be taped. And then they met up and Simon says, I don't have anything in common with him anymore. So they are not friends anymore, which makes me sad. Oh, weird. Yeah. Well, it sounds like Joe had an interesting personality to, to begin be- with. Yeah, to begin yeah. with. So, you know. And Simon also actually works in the public speaker circuit. He's written three books about his mountaineering adventures. Um, He was, I think it was him. I read an article. It was one of them. I'm pretty sure it was Simon who was in two other accidents, one Mm -hmm. that like took off a piece of his nose in like 2009, I think, or 2001. Yeah. Anyway, he still climbs four expeditions a year. He owns a company called Mountain Dreams. It's a climbing expedition company. And the three books that Simon wrote are called Flame of Adventure, Against the Wall, and The Wild Within. And he also contributed like 15% of Joe's book as well. Like he wrote 15% of Joe's book, uh, hmm. Touching the Void. And Touching the Void has sold, I don't know if you know this, uh, more than 1 million copies. It was like huge. very huge. Yeah. And then when the play adaptation was being written, Joe was interviewed. They asked him, why does this story 35 years on continue to captivate people? And he said, I was reading somewhere that there's a notion that's very embedded in our cultural history called the myth of the returning warrior. It's in the sagas of Beowulf, everything from Robert the Bruce, even Jesus Christ, of somebody going away to a very dark, scary place, often death or into Hades and coming back. Of course, I might be talking out my arse because I've been asked this question so many times, but I've always thought it's more than just an adventure story. And then they go on to ask him his thoughts on, have you seen this movie called Free Solo? It's about this climber, Alex Honnold, and he climbs. He's the very first climber to ever free solo El Capitan in Yosemite. It's like a massive rock wall face. I've I've heard of it. I haven't seen it. I watched it. 
uh, when it came out, like 2018, 2019, something See, like that. See, you're into this stuff. I do. I love it. I don't know why. <laughs> it like gives me so much anxiety, but also, yeah. Also, I want to watch it. Um, but yeah, I guess they, in this interview, they were like, oh, have you seen that movie? And he was like, no, <laughs> no. Like, why would I watch that? Like, it's so scary. <laughs> That's amazing. He went on to say, I was always struck by how selfish, serious mountaineering is. You might love it. You might get killed and you might have to accept that risk, but it's your loved ones that pay. To do something like that, you have to be a little bit unhinged. It's not an insult. I think all top sportsmen are mad as a bag of ferrets, frankly. They're doing things on an obsessional level that many people would regard as quite unhealthy. Um, And actually, Joe stopped climbing in 2009, and they asked him, like, what happened that made you stop climbing? And he said, nothing. Nothing ever will. I actually surprised myself. I sat up on this peak in Nepal in 2009, and I could see however many 8,000-meter peaks, Everest, whatever. It was a gorgeous day. I knew I had a three and a half day descent and I was going to be murderous on my knee. So I thought it doesn't get much better than this. This is the time to stop. And I just went to Kathmandu and I sold all my gear and I never climbed again. Since then, he's gotten into paragliding, carpentry and welding, which I'm like all things you could die doing. I mean, not carpentry so much, but <laughs> you could definitely <laughs> I mean, lose a little. Welding. I mean, oh, well, yeah, welding is paragliding is it's pretty low key. Is it? Yeah. I don't know. It's I would do that. That's something scary. I would do. He did get married sometime after 2009. I guess previously it said that he just figured he would be alone forever, like he would never be able to find a partner. Mm -hmm. Um, But he says, it's not a coincidence that it was after I stopped mountaineering. While I climbed, I was too selfish, but it just proves how completely wrong you can be all the time, which is rather wonderful. He sounds like a character. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Uh, He says he thinks of his time in the Andes as both a privilege and a regret. You think you've got some plan for your life, and that's the first thing that goes out the window. It's like that famous Mike Tyson saying, you have a plan until someone punches you in the face. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, um, and then he goes on to say, like, if he had never been to Peru, he wouldn't have become a writer. You know, that's how he makes his living, all that stuff. Well, let me just say, too, that the title, Touching the Void, is Mm -hmm. a great title. Oh, it's great. Yeah. For a book. No joke. So, I mean, you got that going. It's for I mean, it's no, you're going to die out there, but... But it's it's a great title. (laughs) This is kind of a random heartbreaking side to this story. Joe's mother, when she died, she left him this angry letter accusing him of being super selfish. And I just want to point out that she was Irish Catholic. So we're talking like expert level. Expert Expert level level guilt. guilt. Yes. Yes. When asked about that, he said, I was brutally honest with my parents about the risks. What you're doing is essentially very selfish, but you can't be tied to your mother's apron, apron strings for the rest of your life. You're doing the thing that you love. When she died, I just thought she could no longer witness the death of her son. At the time of the interview, his father was actually still alive, and Joe gave him a copy of the documentary to which his father said it was, quote, emotional. Um, And Joe said for him to say that it was quite something. Wow. Yeah. Um, He did talk about Simon again, and in previous articles, Simon says no other climbers were upset with him, but Joe had said he was putting his life on the line absolutely full bore for hours on end, then... To get back and be vilified for cutting the rope is absolutely extraordinary. And this by climbers, by his peers. So there's some conflicting stories about, like, do climbers think he's bad for cutting the rope? Joe says that one guy assaulted him. Yeah. And he was like, he put his life at risk to save mine and then got in a situation where he knew he was likely going to die. No one you know or ever will know will die for someone else in those circumstances. You don't override that. But the paradox is that by cutting the rope, he actually put me in a position where I could save myself. And he didn't know that. He knew logically that he did the only thing possible, but the guilt is not logical. He actually said to me, Jesus, if I just walked back for a couple hours, I'd have found you. And I remember saying to him, why would you do that? I was dead. 
Wow. Yeah. And it's true. Simon cutting the rope did save both of them in the end. I don't know if I mentioned it, but Simon did get married. He had two children. They all climbed together sometimes. It's like a nice little happy family. And he did have someone ask him one time if he was scared, if he was ever scared. And he says, anyone who does adventure sports has to face fear, but you have to rationalize that fear. The natural instinct is to be afraid, but then you can freeze and become completely ineffective. You are continually making risk assessments in your brain, but you have to know when the risks are such that you have to walk away. Very smart. Yeah. So here we are to our organization to support. All right. right. Uh, This organization to support might be kind of a stretch, but in many stories we've talked about for Mountaineers, the focus has been primarily male. In fact, I think the only stories we talked about with women were Pam Bale's Mm -hmm. story Mm -hmm. and the women who were involved in the Everest disaster. So I'd like us to support the AWE Summit Scholarship Foundation, which exists to break down barriers to entry to the big mountain realm for women of all walks of life. You can find them at www.summitscholarship.org. They say we empower women through adventure and contribute to gender equality or equity on and off the mountain. Uh, They have a cool inaugural calendar that you can get for $30 US. And that features women from all over the world who are pursuing mountaineering. And for us, I got us two, uh, one each for 2023. That's amazing. And I love that it's called awe. Yes, awe. Like awesome. (laughs) Like super awesome. Yeah. So yeah. So that is the story of the Sula Grande and Joe Simpson and Simon Yates. Good times. That's amazing. I feel like I knew, I've heard of Touching the Void. I don't mm-hmm. think I saw it, but I saw it came out in 2004. So yeah, yeah. I don't know. Back then I used to watch a bunch of stuff. So I may have seen it because I possible. do recall the story of the somebody cutting a rope. Right. But I don't know all this. I This is kind of a first for me to know all these details. So Yeah. A lot of the disasters are like, oh, wow. I didn't, you know, I vaguely remember that story. You kind of have heard. I had uh-huh. never, ever heard of this. So I just want to say that in 1985, mm-hmm. they didn't have radios. Yeah. I wondered that, too. Like, you guys couldn't just radio each other. You didn't have, like, walkie-talkies. For sure, there was, like, like walkie-talkies. I mean- was that maybe that was too high tech or too much to carry or he, that's the only thing I can think but i mean of when is... you're tethered 300 feet apart right possibly well and i think that they originally weren't tethered that far apart well i mean but still yeah but still i know i thought of that too i was like he doesn't have a radio like how come they aren't radioing to each other because it could have been a situation of like okay this is where you are. Let me try to pull you back up or something, mm-hmm. which I just to have some sort of communication. Really yeah. I don't know. It's true. I, I feel like it's a very practical emergency preparedness kit thing. For sure. Like it's like a real one. Yeah. But I mean, why not some walkie talkies? <laughs> you know, some is Motorola gonna, walkie talkies. Is that going to be your emergency preparedness <laughs> kit? I know just some walkie talkies. <laughs> well, I'm going with Motorola because it's 1985. And oh, yeah, there you go. They, you know, that's where you would go to the Motorola store to sure. get all the things that you needed. <laughs> <laughs> is that lame? I need to come up with something else. Something something uh, more wistful and magical. Uh, what would have been more wistful and magical would have been if he had some of those drugs they left with their <laughs> bro down at the base camp. Yeah, just a baggie of drugs. Just a baggie of drugs. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> some shrooms, some marijuana, whatever. Something way stronger would have been nice. Yeah, yeah. Just, just to cut the pain a little just bit. Just cut the pain and keep that song. That song would have gone <laughs> off. It might have expanded the soundtrack, to yeah, be honest. Yeah. Some drugs and some Motorola Walkie-talkies. Walkie-talkies, because 
1985. Yeah. You definitely could have had those. That's all I'm saying. For sure. Yeah. I mean, they might have sure. been a little bulky. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm just thinking of like kids, even the kid. I feel like my cousin in 1985 had some play walkie talkies that were real small. Probably the batteries wouldn't have lasted that long. That's true. I mean, there could, there's a, probably a lot of reasons why not to have them. Yeah. But why not? You could save the batteries until you really need it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Big, huge, like D batteries with big, <laughs> bulky walkie talkies. It's fine. <laughs> it would have been that extra weight that would have just knocked him off that ice shelf very quickly. Yeah, <laughs> that's it would have been over. But anyway, so I'm going with some Motorola walkie talkies and a baggie of drugs. I like I'm it. I'm sticking with it. It's perfect. It's not magical. It's not wistful. <laughs> it's practical. But I feel like Joe's a practical guy. Joe is a practical guy. And I loved when you were reading what he was saying, you know, in mm-hmm. your American English. Yeah. Saying like crazier than a bag full of bag full of, <laughs> bag full of ferrets. Yeah. Yeah. So good. Those are such like. Is it like know, an English thing? British. Or? Oh, yeah. Totally. A Britishism? Or Scottish. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Good Thanks times. for the story. That was that was great. You're welcome. I loved it. Uh, I'm looking forward to more uh, climbing Alpine stories. stories. It's going to be so good. <laughs> I can't even wait. I'll be working on that beaver story. (laughs) (laughs) I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. You're Gonna Die Out There is produced by us, Jan and Megan, and edited by Jonathan Pillsbury. We'd love it if you can leave us a five-star iTunes review on Apple Podcasts. You can support us by following on Instagram or Twitter, listening and subscribing wherever you get podcasts, or becoming a patron. Check out more on our website at you'regonnadieoutthere.com where you can see our awesome eco-friendly sponsors and Nature Nerd Artisans page. If you'd like to send us your own stories or episode ideas, you can submit them through our contact form on the website or to our email you'regonnadieoutthere at gmail.com. And until next time, don't die out there. Bye. Bye. Bye.